been receiving some good questions about our whole succession planning and the Christian search firm that we have employed to assist us. And so rather than trying to answer those one at a time or in small group settings, two weeks ago I taped what we call a transforming conversation. It's on our website, it's on our app, and took about 25 or so minutes to just thoroughly explain how those folks are coming alongside of us to assist us, but it will still be up to us to discern the Lord's leading. So it's been very helpful to those who have listened to it. We've had many folks say, boy, that answered all the questions I had. So if you have questions in that area, look it up, listen to it. Again, it'll take less than a half an hour of your time, and I think you'll find the information very, very helpful. Well, as we return to our study of Daniel, let me begin today by asking you some questions, not for a verbal response, but just for your consideration. Do you ever struggle with what feels like unanswered prayer, or worse, answers that feel like refusals or betrayals? And have you ever wondered if you didn't receive the answer you were hoping for because your faith was deficient, because you had engaged too much doubt? If so, the words of Daniel's friends as they faced that bow or burn ultimatum should really be very, very helpful to you. They remind us that words like, Lord, if it is your will, are not necessarily inappropriate. They aren't necessarily denials of God's goodness or God's power. Those words can be declarations of something that's just as important as God's power. And we're going to talk about that something today. We continue our study of keeping faith in a corrupt culture by reading once again for the third week in a row, and this will be the final time, the response of Daniel's friends to Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My mom liked to call them your shack, my shack, and a bungalow. <laughs> they replied to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I'm entitling today's teaching, But If Not. Say those words with me. But If Not. Let's pray together. Father, whenever we encounter you through your living word, and we always encounter you in your living word. We have the opportunity to renew our thinking through the Holy Spirit and to be transformed. And the whole point of our time in your word is not to gain information, it's to experience transformation. And so my prayer today is that your Holy Spirit would enable me to teach your word faithfully and then help us to respond to it faithfully so that our thinking will be renewed and our lives will be transformed. We have every confidence that you're going to do that 
because of your love, because of your Father's heart, because of the promises you have shared with us in your word. So we thank you in advance, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And as we listen for God's voice to our hearts today, may the Lord be with you. Have you ever noticed there's something about having to make an immediate split-second decision when you're under intense pressure that has a way of revealing who you are and what you really ultimately value? If you've ever been in a position like that and and then later look back and regretted your choice, you might be tempted to say things I've heard frequently, things like, well, that really wasn't me. Have you ever had somebody say that to you? Oh, that really wasn't me. And I always want to respond, but I don't. Well, then who was it? Because it sure looked like you. Or folks say, I just wasn't myself that day. Or, you know, I I was rushed. If I had had more time, I would have made a better choice. But even as we offer up those explanations, we aren't buying what we're selling, and we know God isn't buying what we're selling, because when we're honest with ourselves, we have to confess that pressure doesn't change who we are. It merely reveals who we are. Pressure doesn't change you. Now, my dad liked to quote Eleanor Roosevelt, the former first lady in that regard. She once said, a woman is like a tea bag. You can't tell how strong she is until you put her in hot water. (laughs) Now, dad modified that quote, and he applied it to faith. He often reminded us, kids, your faith is like a tea bag. You won't know how strong it is until it's immersed in hot water. And dad was absolutely right. Now in the story that is chronicled in chapter 3, Daniel's friends were definitely in hot water. (laughs) And they were facing the prospect of an even hotter incinerating furnace. And they had to make a split second life or death decision. Nebuchadnezzar said, bow or burn. He didn't say, now, go, take a month to fast and pray and get back to me. No, he said, either bow or burn. And their confident response was off the charts where faith is concerned. It testifies to the fact that faith responds to the hollow threats of unbelief with the rock-solid promises of God, and that's exactly what they did. But their response didn't stop there. It also revealed that those three fellows understood the difference between faith and presumption. And there's a big difference between faith and presumption, and you really need to know the difference. If I were to boil it down to its simple terms, I would put it this way. Faith believes that God honors his promises. Presumption believes that God honors its personal desires. Faith believes that God honors what he has declared. Presumption believes that God has to honor what we declare. It's classic role reversal. And that's why God is on record that he will always reward faith, but he will always discipline or punish presumption. 
Now, the men's response to Nebuchadnezzar began by countering his arrogance with a very subtle but nonetheless real rebuke. He said, no God can deliver you out of my hands. And it was his way of saying your religious faith and that God you trust in, no match for my political power. So how did they respond? Well, they responded by, first of all, calling him by his given human name, Nebuchadnezzar. You remember the people who snitched on them, the people who were jealous of them, the people who wanted to get them in trouble? They approached the king by saying, Oh, king, live forever. But Daniel's friends addressed him as a man who was not going to live forever. He may have built a 90-foot-high statue, but beneath his majestic garments in his underwear, he was just a man like them. And they understood that. They knew that faith is founded on the recognition that God is God and everyone else is not. No matter what they claim. No matter what the title before their name or the degrees after it. They are just humans with a name and they are inherently inferior to the one whose name is above all names. And that's why faith doesn't fear created beings. It trusts in the creator of all being. Now, as children of God, Daniel's friends refused to grovel before a child of man. Instead, they spoke boldly with a courageous faith that had its foundations in good spiritual memory. You see, in a very real sense, faith and memory are joined at the hip. They're inseparable. Faith begins and increases with memory. Faith is founded on the memory of what God has said, what God has promised. And faith grows and it increases as we remember how God has kept those promises, how God has honored his word again and again. And verse 17 is a crash tutorial, a crash course in the things that we must remember. I want you to listen as I reconstruct what they said one phrase at a time. They began by saying, our God. They reminded themselves of their identity as God's covenant people. They went on, our God whom we serve. They reminded Nebuchadnezzar they had only served him as an extension of their service to God. Their ultimate loyalty was not to him. It wasn't to Babylon. It was to God and God alone. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. They had reminded themselves of something the prophet Isaiah had said earlier. He quoted God as making this promise. When you pass through the waters... They will not overflow you. I will be with you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. They remembered the first half of that promise was history. God had delivered their ancestors out of the Red Sea. 
And based on that memory, I suspect they believed God was about to fulfill the second half of the promise, the part about fire, and they were going to be a part of that. But they remembered God kept the first part of the promise. We can trust him now to keep the second part. Our God whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand. Based on the memory of who they were, based on the memory of whose they were, based on the memory of who they served, based on the memory of what he had promised, based on the memory of what God had done, they essentially said, Nebuchadnezzar, you had better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Because... (laughs) In this battle, you are out of your weight class. You are no match for our God. Now, safe to say, all of us would love to settle down inside of verse 17. But verse 17 by itself is not complete as a tutorial on faith. It needs the next thing they said. It needs verse 18 to complete the picture. And verse 18 is the one I want to put on center stage. It begins with the words, but if not. We believe our God is able. We believe he's going to, but if not. Now, contrary to what we might be tempted to assume, those words don't indicate that in a fraction of a second, they abandoned everything they had said previously and collapsed in fear and uncertainty, and unbelief. No, there's no indication of that. Those words signal mature faith. And here's why I say that. Mature faith trusts in two things. It trusts in both God's power. He is able, and it trusts in his wisdom. But if not, it's confident he can do anything. But mature faith doesn't presume it always knows what God desires to do. Because God doesn't always reveal what he's up to. He doesn't always reveal exactly how he's going to go about accomplishing it. He doesn't always reveal who he's going to use. He doesn't reveal how it's going to play out. He doesn't reveal the timetable for it. So you could say faith allows God to be God and not the servant of our desires. It's one thing to say that faith trusts both God's power and his wisdom. It's another to hold those two realities together when you're facing the challenges of life or in the face of a fiery furnace. And that teaching certainly doesn't fit with the popular narrative of those who suggest that faith can see its every desire fulfilled if we just name something, verbalize it, and claim it in Jesus' name with unreserved confidence. And especially if, as we exercise our faith, 
We plant a financial seed into the ministry of some preacher, teacher who specializes in marketing presumption under the label of faith and taking advantage of the undiscerning so that he or she can maintain their two private jets and their two mansions. Spiritual snake oil salesman. Those folks would tell you, if you want to see something, you just name it and claim it. You just blab it and you'll get to grab it. And those folks contend, we should never end a prayer by saying, if it be your will. They say it's always God's will to heal, to provide, to work a miracle, to get you a job, to remove a barrier, to see somebody saved. When you speak, if it be your will, they say you are wallowing in weak faith. You are wallowing in miracle, stifling doubt. And you need to break the grip of that doubt upon you. And in the next half hour only, if you sow a thousand dollars seed into this ministry, that power of doubt will be broken over your life. And what's really ironic is that show is taped and shown a day later. And I always ask myself, well, is this half hour an anointed time as well? And I also ask myself, if If God is truly God and loves me, why do I have to prime the pump for him to bless me? And why is it that the seed always has to be sown into your good soil ministry? Why can't the seed be sown into Compassion International or Samaritan's Purse or foreign missions, or God forbid, your local church? Why does it always have to be in the good seed of your ministry, which is good for you and your two multi-million dollar mansions and your private jet and your lavish lifestyle and your three Mercedes? Now, if right by now you're saying, Pastor Rock, you're, you're going after some people. Yes, I am. And I and I do it I do it on good authority because the apostle Paul did it. He identified them by name. I'm not going there. Because there's too many of them. I don't have the time to identify them. But he knew false teaching always demands a high price of God's people. And I've seen so many people's concepts of God's love for them devastated by embracing those kinds of ridiculous promises and then being disappointed. You see, those claims, God will always, name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, sow your seed, they stand if verse 17 wasn't followed by verse 18 and a whole bunch of other verses. But verse 18, with its declaration, but if not, reminds us that the suggestion God will always do what we ask may indeed honor his power, but it does so at the expense of his wisdom. It assumes that our request could never be selfish, could never be arrogant, could never be foolish, could never be fear-based, could never be compromised, could never be uninformed, 
could never be unduly influenced by the world, could never be misguided. It assumes we always know exactly what needs to happen next. It assumes we understand everything God is doing, how he's got to go about it, what he's going to use, and his timetable. And the truth is, we do not. We have the mind of Christ so that we can think like God. But we do not have God's mind in the sense that we know everything he is up to. Not everything that you and I think is a good idea is a God idea or a good idea. That's why our sincere requests may be vetoed by God's wise refusals. I want you to read that with me. Our sincere requests may be vetoed by God's wise refusals. There's so many examples of that in Scripture. Here's one from the book of Acts. You all remember the account where God miraculously delivered Peter from prison in the early days of the church. But I would remind you, just a few days earlier, the apostle James was not miraculously delivered. He was executed. Now, how do you think his brother, his surviving brother John, would have said would have felt if somebody had said, John, John, if James had just believed like Peter, he could have been miraculously delivered too. If James had just sown his seed, he could have been delivered too. John would have looked at you and said, what are you smoking? There's no indication that Peter was delivered because he had superior faith. You know, that account in Acts never mentions Peter's faith. It records his shock when he was miraculously delivered. He was surprised. He was taken off guard. He wasn't in the prison naming and claiming. The best-known faith chapter in Scripture is in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11. And it opens by reminding us of those who saw dramatic miracles of deliverance. And it says those things happened because of their faith. And it even mentions two of the miracles chronicled in the book of Daniel, escaping from a den of lions, escaping from a fiery furnace. And it says these things occurred because of their faith. Then if you've read the chapter, you know halfway through it shifts dramatically. And it begins to talk about believers who were imprisoned, who were persecuted, who were martyred, who were cut in half, who were made homeless, who were made destitute, who wandered in rags and lived in caves. And then it commends them for their faith with the same language it uses to commend those who saw miracles of deliverance. It says, by faith. They endured those things. By faith, they move forward despite those things. And God applauds their faith. He doesn't chastise them for their doubt, their unbelief, or their failure to sow a seed. Daniel's friends close by saying, King, no matter what, we are not going to serve your false gods. And 
We're not going to bow down to your lame statue. They didn't say lame, but I'm sure they were thinking it. (laughs) And it's a reminder that mature faith trusts God no matter what it experiences. It says with Job, even if he slays me, I will still hope in him. It says with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but if not, we will not bow to your gods. We will not serve your gods. Mature faith is but if not faith. It honors both God's power, believing he can do anything, and honoring God's wisdom, knowing that what he will do will probably be outside of my comprehension. Mature faith says, Lord, I believe you are able to heal my body. But if not, I will not bow down to despair and serve the gods of doubt. Mature faith says, Lord, I believe you are able to redeem my son or my daughter. But if not, I will not bow down to resentment and serve the gods of jealousy. Mature faith says, Lord, I believe you are able to lead me to a life partner who shares my faith. But if not, I will not bow down to self-pity or serve the gods of desperation. It says, Lord, I believe you're able to heal my marriage. But if not, I will not bow down to bitterness or serve the gods of hopelessness. Lord, I believe you're able to grow this ministry, but if not, I will not bow down to exaggerated claims and serve the gods of false success. You see, but if not faith is not doubting faith. It's not deficient faith. It's informed faith. It lives in verse 17 and in verse 18. It believes in God's power, and it equally believes in his wisdom. It understands God may deny us what we desire in favor of what we really need. And the two are not always synonymous. We can desire a lot of things that we don't need. I'm convinced if God gave us everything we ask, we'd probably ruin our life within a couple of months. But more importantly, remember, what God is doing in you isn't just about you. If God gave us everything we ask, it might cut somebody else off from what they need. My growth group last evening was talking to me and assuring me that they had been praying for Karen and for me this past week because Valentine's Day to the day marked the second anniversary of our daughter Shannon's death. And they had a hunch that would be a hard day for us. And I was able to remind them that by God's grace, when years and years of praying for my dear daughter were not answered the way I would have hoped, and the Lord, after getting her right with himself, took her before she could get wrong again. 
I can honestly say to you, I never for one nanosecond doubted the goodness of God, doubted, doubted the wisdom of God, felt anger towards God. Why would I? He's God. He does all things well. He does everything perfectly. He doesn't need my counsel. He doesn't need to take a course on greater sensitivity and understanding. His arm is not shortened. His ear is not deaf. If he says what feels like a no to a parent's prayer, it opens the door for yes to a whole lot of other things. And when I get to the other side, I'm going to be eager to find out just what God did on the backside of that no and all of the yeses that flowed out of it. But friends, I'm not blowing smoke. I didn't spend one fraction of a second questioning, doubting, feeling disappointment with God. How could I? He is perfect in all of his ways. And when, when I returned to this pulpit two weeks after my daughter's death, that wasn't showboating. I was ready to declare the word of God because he made all the difference in our dark hour. And he's still making that difference today. A final word. Some of you might be thinking, but Pastor Rock, Jesus promised that whatever we ask in his name, believing it will be done. Right. But you've got to understand what it means to ask in his name. See, asking in Jesus' name doesn't mean that you can ask anything you want, and if at the end of your prayer... You drop Jesus' name. God says, eh, okay, you got me. Now I got to do it. You drop the J-bomb. Once you said in Jesus' name, even though I don't think it's what's best, now I've got to do it. You see, that's cultic thinking. Shamans, witch doctors, devil worshipers, they believe if you just say the right words, the right incantation, the gods have to do your bidding. Biblical faith is trusting a God who never has to do my bidding because I'll be better off if he does his will. Praying in Jesus' name doesn't mean you drop the J-bomb and God has to give you what you want. And you can always tell people who think that's what it's about because they act as if God is deaf when they close in Jesus' name. They, they, they raise the volume about three levels. They're praying like this, and, and so, Lord, this is our request. In Jesus' name! Just in case God was distracted, they want to... Lord, in Jesus' name! Now, now i got to get it. No. No. God will never sacrifice his wisdom just to show you his power. He won't be stupid just because you drop his son's name. He won't step out of who he is 
because you dropped Jesus' name at the end of the conversation. That phrase clearly means to pray in Jesus' name is to offer up a prayer that is in perfect alignment with Jesus' will for your life. A prayer in Jesus' name is the prayer Jesus would pray for you, not the prayer you pray for you. And when your prayer for yourself aligns with what Jesus would pray for you, when it's a your kingdom come, your will be done prayer, it will be answered. But if you want something foolish and just drop Jesus' name, God's under no obligation to play a fool and act like you're a fool. God will be God. And he will say, I know you think that's good, but trust me, that's not good. Or he'll say, you know, it would be good for you this moment, but it wouldn't be good for these 10 people in the future. And it's not all about you. So mature faith can say things like, Lord, if it be your will. That doesn't mean you're wallowing in doubt. It means you're recognizing his wisdom. You believe he can do anything. But you also understand he won't always do what you request because of his wisdom. I hope that frees some of you from false guilt. I hope that will help some of you resist the temptation to give somebody your money when they don't deserve it. Put it where it will bring forth the harvest, not where it will promote false doctrine. Because I believe with all my heart, when you give to a ministry, God holds you responsible for what you enabled. And if you enable false teaching, God will have to discipline you for that. If you enable what aligns with his truth, God will reward you for that. I got a minute. Let me add an unplanned conclusion. Good friend of mine, when I first came here, who ran a very prominent ministry on the north side, shared with me the story of how he and his brother were very cynical about Jesus. And their mother had been bound to a wheelchair for many, many years. And she once asked her two boys to take her to a Catherine Kuhlman service in downtown Pittsburgh. Under Catherine's preaching, many people got healed as a divine apologetic. She didn't guarantee healing. She just preached Jesus and people got healed. There's a big difference. So he said, we, we wheeled mom into the back and thought, Oh, this has got to be fun. Now we're going to show what, what a hoax this is. And then they watch mom jump up out of the wheelchair and run to the front of the sanctuary and find Jesus and be instantly healed. Amen. And so they came back the next week and they gave their hearts to Jesus and both of them experienced healing. So they believed in the power of God. Years later, he had a very bad knee and needed a total knee replacement. He prayed. He was anointed. But God didn't heal directly, and so he felt, all right, then I'll allow God to heal through medical technology. That's a gift from God, a good gift from God. Amen. Physicians, nurses are often the tools that God uses. And we don't need to tell God what tools to use. We just need to trust him for the outcome. Amen. Well, the night before his surgery, is in his bed when some of his J-bomb friends came to visit him. And, and, and they chided him and rebuked him for his lack of faith and said, you need to get up and walk out of this hospital. And he just said, I don't have that assurance. And as they left, they said, even five minutes before the surgery, 
If you come to your senses, walk out of here and trust God. Well, he had the surgery. And in the days immediately following, so that the healing would be proper, he had to walk the halls of Allegheny General Hospital four or five times a day. Now, he couldn't walk on his own, so he had to have a nurse literally arm-in-arm with him. And those nurses became like those Roman centurions who took turns being chained to the Apostle Paul. You talk about a captive audience and why Paul was later able to say, some of Caesar's household are now Jesus' followers. Well, long story short, he led one of those young women, one of those nurses, to faith in Jesus. She subsequently felt the call to the mission field, and she spent the remainder of her life in another culture leading people to faith in Jesus. You see, it wasn't all about him. Thank God he trusted not only in a God who has power, but he trusted in a God who has wisdom. And God wants us to do the same. Let's pray together. Father... Give us discernment so that we know the difference between faith and presumption. Help us to embrace the former. Help us to shun the latter so that we might honor you in your power and your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.